Welcome to the Bible Professor Podcast Show, where our goal is to bring biblical literacy to the podcasting world and to the ends of the earth. We do that by teaching the Bible, defending biblical Christianity, and discussing the Bible's relevance to culture. I am uh, pleased to have uh, Dr. Jonathan McClatchy with us today. Uh, Dr. McClatchy, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. It's an honor to be here. Well, thank you, and I appreciate your time. Um, if you would uh, tell us a little bit about your family, you lo- your location, your domicile, uh, your credentials, and so forth. Sure. So I, I grew up in Scotland. Uh, my family uh, is in Scotland. I was raised there, and I um, did my uh, degrees in in, this, in the field of biology. I have a bachelor's degree in forensic biology from the University of Strathclyde. I also have a master's in evolutionary biology from University of Glasgow and another master's in medical and molecular bioscience from Newcastle University. And then I completed my PhD in uh, um, early 2020, uh, which is in uh, uh, studying the evolution of the eukaryotic cell cycle. And currently I'm an assistant professor of biology at a Christian college in Boston, Massachusetts called Sattler College. I'm also a fellow of the Discovery Institute, Center for Science and Culture in Seattle, Washington. And uh, so, yeah, I've been living in the United States for three years. I'm married with my wife, Katerina. Uh, we got married in 2019, as uh, she is from Austria. And uh, we currently live in the United States. And uh, yeah, I've been really enjoying our, our time here. Okay, wonderful. Glad to have a guy like you in the state. So, you're well-trained in the field of uh, uh, those particular sciences. So I, I guess I uh, asked the right guy on here for a couple of questions I have. So uh, we'll get right to it. Uh, in the field of science uh, and in this discussion between you know faith and science or science and the Bible, you get these questions or challenges from folks uh, a lot about, uh, well, you know, uh, the the... the design in the universe and origins, it all goes back to naturalism. Naturalism is is the answer. Uh, And, 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 and also along with that, most people think that scientists in toto believe in uh, naturalism as the explanation for origins of the universe. Can you begin to answer that? Well, first of all, that's just not true. There, there are many biologists uh, and, and scientists who uh, subscribe to intelligent design or think that there's a creator uh, behind the universe. Uh, there's, uh, for example, a scientific descent from Darwinism list, which is signed by over a thousand um, scientists, including myself, uh, who um, have expressed reservations about the strengths or the merits of neo-Darwinian orthodoxy. And there's a number of reasons why I and many other scientists think that uh, biology and the natural sciences more broadly points quite forcefully to the conclusion of design. Uh, for example, uh, the information content of the cell um, since uh, particularly the 1950s, we've understood uh, the information basis of life. And we've understood that the um, along the, the spine or what biologists call the sugar phosphate backbone of the DNA molecule, are chemical subunits that we represent with the alphabetic characters of A, C, T, and G, which determines the sequential arrangement of amino acids, which are the subunits of proteins that uh, fulfill many of the jobs in the cell, mm-hmm. such as uh, catalyzing reactions and being part uh, contributing to macromolecular machines. And uh, in, in every realm of experience um, of, cause, of cause and effect, when we're dealing with information content, particularly in a digital form, we habitually associate that with conscious deliberative activity. And so when we find information content in the cell, it's not particularly surprising that we'd find that, uh, that we'd make that observation, given the hypothesis that a mind was involved in life's origins. But it's wildly surprising on the falsity of that hypothesis. And so that uh, tends mm. to favor, I think, quite overwhelmingly, the design hypothesis. Uh, and then you look at uh, Erdos' complex machinery that we find in the cell. So irreducible complexity is a term that was coined by biochemist Michael Behe from Lehigh University in Pennsylvania in his book, Darwin's Black Box in 1996. And basically the idea is that we, there are many thousands of systems in biology where 
there's a higher level objective that's being accomplished by multiple subfunctions that have to work together in unison to bring about that higher level objective. And so if you were to take one of the subfunctions away, you wouldn't have a system that works half as efficiently as it used to or quarter as efficiently as it used to, but it would be broken. And so an example from everyday usage would be a mousetrap where um, you've got you know, the, the, the platform, you've got the spring, you've got the um, the hold down bar, you've got the, the catch, you've got um, the staples that hold the trap together. Um, and if any of those pieces were missing, you wouldn't have a trap that worked half as efficiently as it used to, or caught a quarter as many mice as it used to, but it would be broken. <laughs> and there are many such examples like that in biology. And the way the, the reason that this contributes to the case for design is because intelligent agents uniquely have the ability to uh, visualize a complex end goal and then bring everything together needed to realize that end goal. Uh, whereas mindless, unguided stochastic processes typically can't do that. And so, um, and so the irreducibly complex systems of biology, of which there are many thousands, uh, point, I think, quite forcefully to the conclusion that a mind was involved in life's origins. Um, so an example of an ISPA complex system in biology would be the DNA replication apparatus. Um, so there are various components that are involved. There's the um, the initiation proteins that open up the, um, the DNA double helix for copying. And then you've got the helicase enzyme that breaks the hydrogen bonds between the two strands of the DNA to prepare for copying. You've got the DNA polymerase that actually performs the copying. You've got the um, the primase enzyme because the uh, DNA polymerase isn't able to begin replication by itself. Uh, it needs what's called a three prime hydroxyl group in order to to start. And so there's a, an enzyme called primase which synthesizes a short RNA sequence at the start of the strand to to allow the DNA polymerase to take over. Um, you have the sliding clamp that clamps on the polymerase to the strand of DNA to prevent it from falling off during copying. You have the clamp loader that loads on the sliding clamp. You have um, the top isomerase enzymes that alleviate supercoiling because as the DNA unwinds, it can result in torsional, because of the torsional stress that can result in supercoiling. Think of uh, an old telephone cord getting you know, supercoiled. And so a top isomerase enzyme basically is able to cut one of the strands, pass the other strand through the break and then reseal the break to alleviate that supercoiling. Um, because of the anti-parallel nature of DNA, the two strands have to be copied um, in opposite directions. One strand has to be copied backwards and so one the strands actually gets looped around um, and, uh, and and copied discontinuously basically there are short RNA primers that are laid down and then very short um, Okazaki fragments which are just short segments of DNA that are copied from those RNA primers um, and uh, basically the R the RNA primers have to get removed or replaced with DNA the Okazaki fragments have to get glued together there's an enzyme for doing that called ligase <laughs> and so forth. And if, if any of those components were missing, uh, then you wouldn't have DNA replication that worked half as efficiently as it used to or quarters efficiently as it used to, but it would be broken. And so how do you, by numerous successive slight modifications, put together a system like that without knowing where the target is? And furthermore, I, I picked that, I cherry picked that particular example because um, uh, that's an example of what I would call irreducible complexity on steroids because uh, it's, uh, the natural selection presupposes differential survival. You cannot have natural selection unless you have differential survival, which of course depends upon self-replicatability. And so you can't really invoke natural selection to explain the existence of self-replicatability without assuming the existence of everything you're trying to explain. Uh, so that's just one example of, of, of many. Um, and then you've also got evidences in the physical sciences as well for design, such as uh, the um, the fact the universe seems, as far as we can tell, to have had a beginning uh, something like 13.8 billion years ago. And uh, there is overwhelming evidence for that. Uh, for example, the second law of thermodynamics or the law of entropy uh, indicates that uh, entropy tends to increase in the universe. Entropy is a measurement of disorderliness in the universe. And if uh, and, and so the implication is that if the universe is left to itself, it will eventually uh, result in a heat death. Um, where there's no usable energy left in the universe to perform work and everything will be at minus at, 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 you know, absolute zero temperature, which is minus 273 degrees centigrade. Um, and if the universe were eternal, we'd have already arrived at that heat death, um, but we haven't. And so that indicates that the universe is finite and just one of many evidences for that conclusion. Okay. And but in fact, the universe seems to have had a beginning. It, sorry, go ahead. 
No, go ahead. Go ahead. Finish that thought. Uh, the fact the universe that seems to have had a beginning uh, is is more probable on the supposition of theism than it is on the supposition of, of atheism. Okay. I, I, I want to certainly get to that probabilistic uh, issue, but let me back up. So so what you said thus far um, with these uh, sub-functions within the cell, these things then, it's, it's fairly impossible that they happen by chance random processes, right? Fairly impossible. <laughs> Yeah, so the the argument isn't that they happen by chance per se. Um, they have so chance, of course, is an important contributor, but there's also a non-random element to evolution, which is natural selection. So natural selection ensures that the the organisms that are most conducive to survival in their environments survive, mm -hmm. uh, and so the the combinations of gene variants that they possess tend to increase in frequency over time in the population, whereas the combinations of gene variants that are less conducive to survival tend to become less frequent over time. So there's a non-random element to evolution. But <laughs> when we're talking about early complex systems, uh, you have to appeal to a lot of chance in order for natural selection to really take effect because natural selection can't, uh, um, can't, can't visualize a complex end goal because natural selection is great at ensuring the survival of the fittest, but not great at ensuring the arrival of the fittest. Um, and so to get to the arrival of the fittest, you need to appeal to a lot of chance. And it seems that when multiple codependent changes are required in order to bring about a fitness benefit that can be uh, acted on by natural selection, that's where uh, random processes really fail in explaining uh, what we need to explain. Okay. So we're joined today by Dr. Jonathan McClatchy, and he is a biology professor uh, in Boston. And um, we're talking uh, science and faith and, and whatever uh, his uh, subfields are in apologetics, because Dr. McClatchy, as I know, can, uh, uh, can debate and discuss these issues uh, from a wide uh, variety of, of uh, fields of study. Um, what, back to the thing, though, that you said about... Um, uh, you know, from, from, uh, the physical universe and, and, um, uh, what were you talking about? Second law of thermodynamics and so forth. Why is it though, that, uh, notwithstanding that those things are true, why is it, do you think so many, especially in the, in the science world, uh, still, uh, hold to Darwinian naturalism, uh, evolutionary biology and so forth? Why, why do you think they still hold to those things? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I wouldn't like to speak for everyone in the fields, because uh, sure, sure. I think that there's a wide diversity of reasons that people might have. Um, I, I think, uh, so my, my sense is, first of all, a lot of people in the biological community are not very knowledgeable of evolution. If you talk to like, your everyday biologist working in the lab, they're working on a very small problem. They don't give a lot of thought to evolution, and it's just not right. their area of expertise. <laughs> so. Um, so the vast majority of, bio, of working biologists, I think, are are not very knowledgeable on evolution beyond perhaps the basics. And then of the minority of biologists who actually do specialize in evolution, namely evolutionary biologists, the vast majority of them are not familiar with the criticisms of neo-Darwinian evolutionary theory. And so, uh, and then of the very small minority of those specialists who are familiar with those criticisms, their rejoinders to the arguments are not very good. So um, I, I take the consensus there with a large grain of salt. And I, I do think that there is, for many, I'm not saying this is the case for all, but uh, for many, there is a, a, um, a naturalistic bias that uh, that colors their judgment when it comes to these matters. Um, for example, um, there's a famous quote by Richard Lewontin who said that, you know, we, uh, we, uh, can't, we cannot take, allow a divine foot in the door. And so we should uh, uh, a priori rule out uh, supernatural causes. Okay. Very good. So, um, you know, you, these, these uh, your responses and you're educating us today and talking about these things from your field of science. They they take my mind, since I'm a Bible professor, they take my mind to Psalm 19. The heavens are declaring the glory of God, but that's that's out there. You know, that's astronomical, if you will. But you're saying also at the molecular level, uh, way down here, uh, you also find evidence for design. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that Paul, the apostle, would feel extremely vindicated when, uh, in the first century, when he wrote Romans 1, 
uh, verse 20, that through the created order, God's through things that have been made, God's uh, eternal attributes and divine nature are being clearly perceived, such that men are anapologetic, that they're without an apologetic, uh, they're without an excuse. That uh, I, I think that you would feel very vindicated by our modern advances in the physical and life sciences, which really, I think, puts the question of whether there's a God or not beyond a question. I, I think the evidence is just absolutely staggering. Uh, and this also, of course, relates to the problem of divine hiddenness, which I get asked about quite a bit, uh, which is the idea of why, why doesn't God make himself more obvious? And I think at least if theism is construed in the broad sense, I, I think that theism is obvious. I think that, unfortunately, it's made artificially difficult by bad scholarship. You know, people asking you, why do you need to go and get, why do we need to get PhDs in astrophysics and molecular biology to see that there's a God? Well, you don't. It's just that the the bad scholarship that gets in the way is is technical and so it needs a technical response but the actual inference th that we can make from looking at living organisms and so forth for design is, is not a difficult inference to draw um and so i i, I think that um that given that it's uh non-obvious that there's there's nothing to the christian claim because of the evidence of god in nature i think that that renders uh, it's uh, incumbent upon one to investigate the the evidences for Christianity. And my, I'm confident that when one does that and tries to do so objectively and impartially, uh, one will, at least in their long run, come to find Christianity to be true and well supported. Very good. And also, and this is a, um, again, we're talking science and faith or faith in the Bible and so forth. We're joined by biologist, Dr. Jonathan McClatchy. Um, uh, so those of us in the apologetics world are used to this term fine tuning again to refer to things out there, but you also use that term at the molecular level. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. One one example of that would be the fine tuning of the genetic code. Uh, so the genetic code is the mapping, if you will, between codons, which are basically three letter words in the language of DNA, each of which specifies an amino acid, which is the subunit of a subunit of proteins. Uh, so um, there's 64 different codons and there's 20 amino acids. So there's a redundancy in the genetic code that amino acids are coded for by multiple codons. And the there's multiple levels of fine tuning of the genetic code, which tend to uh, point to design. Uh, one of those, for example, uh, is that the genetic code seems to be um, uh, set up in such a way that codons that differ by only one letter or one base either end up uh, specifying the same amino acid or an amino acid with similar chemical properties. And so it mitigates against the effects of frame shift. Sorry, uh, it mitigates against the effect of, of um, substitutionary mutations. Um, and uh, that's interesting because to get a, um, you, you cannot really get a substantially evolving genetic code because to do so, if you were to change the codon to amino acid mapping of uh, over time, then you would essentially be modifying every polypeptide produced by the cell, which would wreak havoc. And so that, this is why Francis Crick referred to the genetic code as a, as a frozen accident, uh, because you cannot really evolve the genetic code once it's already been established. And so the, the fine-tuning of the genetic code, I mean, the fact that there are language conventions at all is... is far less surprising on the design hypothesis and on the naturalistic hypothesis. Um, and the fact that it's fine-tuned uh, is, again, far less surprising if you are a design theorist than it is if you're not a design theorist. And so it confirms the design hypothesis. Okay, thank you. And you have another uh, unique illustration, uh, if you can share uh, on, on uh, evidential, the notion of evidence is it's uh, coming upon a cabin in the forest. You... Yeah, this this illustration I actually got from uh, Dr. Timothy McGrew, uh, who's a philosopher at Western Michigan University. Um, but this is one I sometimes use in order to illustrate the concept of evidence, what we mean by evidence. Um, so you suppose that you come across a cabin in the forest and you're you know, far away from roads and, and uh, sidewalks and civilization and so forth. And you, you come across this, this, this cabin and it looks like it's run down. It doesn't look like there's anyone inhabiting the cabin. And so you decide to inspect and so you prize open the door and you see a, um, you see a, a, a tumbler sitting on the table. And inside this tumbler is Errol Gray tea, which is still steeping. It's not at room temperature. And now 
on the hypothesis that the cabinet is inhabited, would you have predicted that you would find a cup of Earl Grey tea that's, it, that's still steeping? Well, no, not particularly. There's all kinds of things that you might have found. You might have found coffee or a different type of tea, or there might have been nothing there and it could still have been inhabited. So it's not highly predicted given the hypothesis, but it's still far better predicted given the hypothesis the cabin's inhabited than it would have been on the falsity because it's, it's not especially surprising if the cabin's inhabited that you would find that, but it's wildly surprising if the cabin's not inhabited. And so again, it tends to confirm the inhabitation hypothesis. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a card carrying Bayesian when it comes to epistemology. And so that, that's the way that we can see of evidence as Bayesians is uh, again, in terms of a likelihood ratio, the probability. Uh, so on the numerator, you have the probability of the evidence existing given the hypothesis being true. And under the denominator, you have the probability of that same evidence existing given the hypothesis is false. And the extent to which that likelihood ratio is top heavy, that's the extent to which you have evidence for your hypothesis. Okay, and this is part and parcel, I think, because you've crossed from scientific apologetics into philo philosophical apologetics, uh, perhaps, but but you can do that. I happen to know that you're capable of doing that. You you debate around the world. I've seen in uh, one particular episode where you presented a defense of the existence of God based on the probability uh, argument, uh, and I think what you've just said is part and parcel of that, but can you elaborate a little more on the probability uh, notion? that you use yeah so as, as i said earlier um the, there's the fact the universe seems as far as we can tell to have had a beginning there's several lines of evidence that tend to confirm that and that observation is is less surprising if, if theism is true than it is if, if atheism is true right if the steady state model which was a dominant model prior to the big bang cosmology uh, in the 20th century if that had turned out to be correct then that would have been appropriately taken by atheists as evidence against theism, because it sits far more comfortably on an atheistic view than it does on a theistic view. Um, and so the, the converse then is necessarily true. The fact that the steady state model, which it maintains a static universe, an eternal universe that's been here forever, the fact that that turned out to be false and the universe hasn't been here forever uh, tends to favor the theistic hypothesis. Now, there's, there's a very common mistake that people make on both sides, both the atheist and the theist, which is to think that... Uh, if if an argument can't can't uh, sufficiently justify a conclusion, then it doesn't count for any evidence. Um, and I think that <laughs> unfortunately, this uh, problem is or this uh, misconception is fueled by approaches to apologetics as taken by some like William Lane Craig, for instance, where they will present all of their arguments in terms of deductive syllogism. So the, the cosmological argument, for instance, everything which begins to exist as a cause, universe. Uh, began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause for its existence. And um, and then the fine-tuning argument he also presents deductively as well. Um, but I think that evidence can still carry evidential value, even if it's not sufficient to justify the conclusion. So my expression of the cosmological argument would be far more modest than that of Willem and Craig. So I'm not arguing that the fact the universe has a beginning justifies theistic belief. I'm saying that it confirms theistic belief, meaning that it makes theistic belief more plausible than it was previously. Uh, and right. then you also factor in the, the fine-tuning of the laws and constants of our universe. Uh, so for instance, the cosmological constant, which determines how rapidly the universe expands, is thought by physicists to be finely tuned. The usual value that's given in the literature is 10th, 120th power. I think the most conservative value that's given in the literature is one in 10th of the 53rd power. But in any case, it's very, very um, exquisitely fine-tuned. Um, and so um, if, the, if the cosmological constant were to vary by so much as a hair's breadth, then either uh, it, the universe would expand so rapidly that you'd only ever get the two lightest elements, hydrogen and helium, or you get a big crunch scenario. Either way, no life could exist. Um, you've also got the gravitational constant, the, ra um, the uh, ratio of the strong weak nuclear force, the... Um, 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 and so and so forth. There's there's a whole range of different parameters and constants that have to be finely tuned for life to exist. Now, again, that observation is not particularly surprising if theism is true, but it's wildly surprising on the falsity thereof. Right. And one might say, well, perhaps you know there there could be some other explanation. Perhaps mm -hmm. it's a multiverse, and we just got mm -hmm. lucky in this cosmic lottery or something like that. And I I would say to that, well, sure, there's there's some problems with the multiverse hypothesis that we could discuss, but let's just say that's that's possible for the sake of argument. 
Uh, but it does render theism more plausible than it was previously, and therefore it contributes to a, an evidential case. And when we have two explanations that can explain the same data, we want to look for more data, right, to help us to differentiate between those two alternative hypotheses. And so then you would also factor in the biological evidence of design, which again adds further weight to the theistic case. Um, and you've also got um, other um, categories of fine-tuning besides the physical laws and constants. Uh, so Michael Denton, for example, has a series of books. Uh, uh, his most recent one is called The Miracle of Men, but he's also written other books like The Wonder of Water and The um, and Children of Light and, and so forth. Um, uh, and he points out various uh, instances where nature seems to be fine-tuned to, uh, to it, or seems to be a, a conspiracy so as to be conducive to human existence. So for instance, um, he points out that the pro there's various properties of water which are highly fine-tuned to make life possible. For example, uh, water is unique in that, uh, so because of hydrogen bonding, it uh, when, when it freezes, it expands, which makes it actually float rather than sink when it, when it freezes. Uh, we call it ice. And and that when when water freezes, it insulates the water beneath and keeps it in its liquid form. But if the ice were to sink to the bottom, then the oceans would freeze from the bottom up, and much of the world, much of the planet, would be permanently encased in ice, which obviously would not be great. Um, there's also other levels of fine tuning associated with water. For example, it's um, uh, the in intrinsic properties of water. Per, uh, allow the hydrologic cycle so the water can be transported onto the land where it's required. Um, so it, water um, uniquely at the ambient temperatures at the Earth's surface mm -hmm. is able to exist in all three states of solids, liquid, and, and gas. And so that allows the hydrologic cycle where water evaporates into the atmosphere and then comes down as rain. Um, and water, of course, didn't owe us those properties, and yet it's there. Um, Otherwise, much of the world would be a barren desert. You've also got uh, the um, the high evaporative cooling of water, so that when we sweat, we can actually because if 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 if, the, if we if the temperature is like thirty eight degrees centigrade, then the environment outside of us is actually warmer than our core body temperature. So we can't just radiate the heat out in order to cool down on a hot summer's day. But we sweat instead, which and because of the high evaporative cooling of water, that allows us to cool down. Um, and, and it's just on and on. There's various properties that uh, seem to be highly fine-tuned for, for life to exist. Um, and that's just the, the pinnacle of the iceberg. There's also the properties of, of light. So for example, um, the, um, there's a very, very small band in the electromagnetic spectrum, which is visible light. That is light, which is conducive to photochemistry. Very, very small band. Um, you can think of it as perhaps a few playing cards in a stack of cards stretching all the way to the Andromeda galaxy. Right? That's how small the band is that's conducive to photochemistry so that we could see and so the photosynthesis can take place. And, uh, and then you've also got a very narrow band as well, which is the near-infrared, which is felt as heat. Um, and it's, it's interesting then that more than half of the radiation emitted by the sun just so happens to fall in that that range, that very, very narrow range, the uh, <clears throat> the light, which is conducive to photochem, the radiation that's conducive to photochemistry and the adjacent near infrared, which is felt as heat. And it also just so happens that the atmosphere allows in those sorts of radiation and blocks out the harmful rays, like the, the, the microwaves and gamma rays and so forth, which, uh, which are harmful to living organisms such as ourselves. Um, and so when you look at all of those different properties um, of our universe everything just seems to be a conspiracy to make life possible and uh and, and so when with each even if each of these individual lines of evidence is not sufficient only suggestive on its own when you take all of those different lines of evidences in aggregate it seems to me to render the case for theism essentially beyond question okay and you would include the arguments in taken in aggregate you would include the for instance, five ways to know how God exists. You would include all of that as well, because none of those probably are sufficient in and of themselves, right, to present a solid case. You, you mean Thomas Aquinas's five ways? Yeah, yeah. Well, just cosmological yeah. view, fine-tuning, and then the actual molecular and astronomical evidence 
you're saying taking all of, taking all of those together, you you have a very strong case that the right. theistic God exists. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, exactly. What about um, and thank you. And again, we're with biology professor Dr. Jonathan McClatchy. Thank you for coming on the Bible Professor Show. But let me let me uh, give you a little pushback here. Um, because some people will say, okay, okay, so you've given all of, this is actually an excellent presentation, by the way, of all these examples from the scientific community, from the science world of science about a designer exists. And some people say, okay, you've got us to, there's a great designer probably, but take us across that line. How do you get from there's a theistic God or a great designer to the God of Christianity, the God of the Bible. Take us across that line. Yeah. So there's a number of, I've got about six or seven different lines of argument for Christianity specifically. Uh, obviously don't have time to do justice to all of those, but let's talk about perhaps one or, or two if we have time. So let's talk yeah, first of all you. about the resurrection. Let's talk about the resurrection of Jesus. So uh, the approach that I would take to the resurrection of Jesus is what uh, I call the maximal data approach to the resurrection. And basically the argument in its skeletal form, if you will, uh, or as a summary form, would take the following form. It would argue that we have very, very strong reason to think that the accounts that we find in the Gospels and Acts uh, concerning the nature of variety of the resurrection encounters actually reflects the unembellished statements of those who were purportedly eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. And uh, if that's the case, then one of three things is true, as indeed it is the case when we're evaluating any sort of testimonial claim, whether we're talking about a sexual assault allegation or witness to a miracle or whatever it happens to be. Namely, the witnesses lied or they were honestly mistaken or they were telling us the truth. And when you look at the nature and variety of the resurrection encounters that we find in the Gospels and Acts, we find that the, um, the the statements that are made there are not the sort about which it's easy to be honestly mistaken. Mm -hmm. They don't involve merely uh, individual sightings from a great distance and very briefly or something like that, but rather they involve group sightings of Jesus. Not only that, but group conversations with Jesus, long extended discourses with Jesus, like the Amazed Disciples in Luke 24, for example. They involve uh, physical contact with Jesus. They involve watching Jesus eat broiled fish in Luke 24, eating breakfast with Jesus on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, they are, according to Acts 1, it's extended across a 40-day time period, right? So it's not just a brief and confusing episode. And so it's 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 a sort of set of testimonial claims about which it's not easy to be honest and mistaken. I mean, think back to a time perhaps when you were in high school and you were hanging out with a friend that you used to hang out with in high school. Do you think you could testify to two things? Namely, this was in fact your friend and not someone else. And number two, that your friend was in fact alive and not dead. Well, of course, <laughs> it's, it's very difficult to be honest and mistaken about that, right? Um, so that's, that's one argument against uh, them being honestly mistaken. There's another argument though as well, which further bolsters that, that case. So in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul refers to Christ as the first fruits from among those, uh, among those who have fallen asleep. And what he means by that is that Christ is the fulfillment of the first fruits feast, which uh, so it, in the same way that the first fruits represents the first fruits of the harvest, the, the, the guarantor, if you will, that the rest of the harvest is to come. So likewise, Christ is the first to be raised to glory and immortality. He is the guarantor of the general resurrection to come, as per Daniel 12. And, right. um, and of course, the first fruits feast is... Uh, instituted in Leviticus 23. And we read in Leviticus 23 that the first fruits feast is to be commemorated on the day following the first Sabbath, following the Passover, which would make it the Sunday following Passover. Of course, that's the day in which uh, Jesus rose from the dead, according to all four Gospels. And it's, it's striking that the early church uniformly and without any competing tradition changed their sacred day from the Sabbath to the what they call the Lord's Day, which is the first day of the week. You find right, that throughout right. the church fathers. And, and the, the reason that's consistently given by all the church fathers is they commemorate the Lord's Day, they gather in the Lord's Day 
They break bread in the Lord's Day because that's the day when Jesus rose from the dead. You can trace that back to the New Testament even. Book of Revelation, for example, John says, I was in the Spirit in the Lord's Day. He doesn't even tell his readers what he means about the Lord's Day. It's taken for granted that people know what the Lord's Day is. Uh, also, uh, Paul speaks about you know, gathering collection on the first day of the week. In the book of Acts, they're breaking bread on the first day of the week. So, it, And there's no competing alternative tradition. So that suggests that the idea that Christ rose on the first day of the week goes back exceedingly early. That being the case, that tends to point to design, right? Uh, either uh, what, what, it points to design, um, and then the question becomes, okay, what's the locus of the design? Is it the case that God supernaturally rose Jesus from the dead on that day in, in order to fulfill the first fruit symbolism? Or is it that the human authors changed the story to make Jesus rise from the dead on the day of first fruits because of theological import? Either way, it points away from the honest mistaken hypothesis again. Uh, so having having shown how implausible the uh, honest mistaken hypothesis is, then we turn to the two remaining explanations, namely Jesus rose from the dead or the disciples lied. And when we look at the circumstances into which Christianity was birthed, derive, deriving our information from the book of Acts and the letters of Paul and Clement of Rome and, and other sources, we find that the early apostles were, there's this context of persecution where the early apostles were willing to endure and undergo sufferings and labors and dangers and hardships and persecutions, in some cases martyrdom, on account of their testimony that Christ was raised from the dead. And multi-party conspiracies, when life or liberty are at stake, have a tendency to break down. And so that goes a long way towards establishing that they were at least sincere in making this statement. Now, notice I'm, I'm trying to be careful to nuance my, my words here because uh, there's unfortunately in some apologetic circles a tendency to overstate this argument. I'm not saying, as, as many people say, that all of the apostles except John went to their deaths as martyrs. We don't have sufficient justification for thinking that to be the case. Right. What, what I am saying, though, <laughs> is so that there is a pretty good case for Paul. There's a good case for Peter, for James, the son of Zebedee, for James, the brother of Jesus. Besides that, we really don't know what happened to the apostles. But um, what we can say is that the apostles... Uh, uh, took tremendous risks in their statements concerning the resurrection and the proclamation of the truth of the gospel. And so that goes a long way towards establishing their sincerity because there was a risk of, of, of persecution, imprisonment, and death. We see in the book of Acts, for example, the imprisonment of Peter and John, the stoning of Stephen. Um, and of course, if the yeah. apostles were leaders well, it, in the- It's the same with the establishment. It's the same with the establishment of the canon, not too awful long after that, when persecution and death is at stake they wanted to be sure they had the right books that they were defending to the dead right. <laughs> yeah so um so so that's the argument from from the persecution and then you've also got other arguments which further bolster the conclusion that they're not lying so for instance the fact that in all four gospels the evangelists uh use women as the chief discoveries of the empty tomb mm -hmm. and as you right. know in the patriarchal society that was ancient israel the testimony of a woman was worth only a fraction of that of a male witness. And so if you're making stuff up, then why would you have women as the chief discoveries of the empty tomb rather than male witnesses? In fact, that would be ridiculed later. So, and, and then furthermore, even that point aside, why even involve the woman at all? You're involving additional conspirators who are subject to outside influences that are beyond the apostles' control, such as in the case of the women, the their, their own husbands or perhaps their fathers and other uh, authority figures in their life that could uh that, that could dissuade them from continuing in this in this conspiracy so there, there's a lot of factors that seem to contribute to making a, a robust case against those two competing explanations namely mm -hmm. that the apostles were honestly mistaken or that they were lying and so then the best explanation is that jesus in fact rose from the dead now of course the the crucial aspect of that case then becomes whether the what we have the statements we have in the Gospels and Acts actually do reflect the unembellished testimony of the apostles, and of course we have to make a case for that. Um, let me just give you a few examples. This is what I call an evidence sampler. Um, I could talk for many many hours uh, giving evidence for this um, premise, but let me just give you a few examples real quick. So, the Book of Acts, for example, uh, is uh, written by, and we can show overwhelming evidence to establish this, uh, a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. Uh, he This is his own claim. In Acts 16 and following, you have the introduction of the we passages, um, where the author seems to be claiming to be present um, during the Apostle Paul's journeys. 
And at one point that Craig Keener makes, which I think is valid, is that at the in Act 16, the wee passages actually trail off when Paul when Paul goes to Philippi. And then you don't see any more wee passages until chapter 20 when Paul goes back through Philippi, which suggests that the author had remained in Philippi and had rejoined Paul on his missionary travels when Paul returned through Philippi. And so that suggests that the, that the wee passages ought to be taken at face value, that the that there's not some sort of fancy literary device, uh, as some right. scholars would maintain, like Victor Perabo mm-hmm. and, and others. Um, but it's but it's actually to be taken at face value. Um, furthermore, there are numerous you know, scores and scores of undesigned coincidences that indicate that Luke was a traveling companion of Paul. So an example of this is if we go over to the book of First mm-hmm. Corinthians. In chapter four. Now, First Corinthians, of course, was written from Ephesus in Asia Minor, uh, something like AD 53 AD. And he's writing to the church in Corinth, which is the capital of Achaia, what we now know as what we now call Greece. And mm-hmm. in verse 17 of First Corinthians 4, he says, That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child of the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, um, as I teach them everywhere in every church. So evidently, at the time of his writing from Ephesus to Corinth, he's already sent Timothy on his way from Ephesus to Corinth. However, when you get to chapter 16 and verse 10, he says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. Now, even though he's already sent Timothy on his way from Ephesus to Corinth, he nonetheless expects his letter to arrive in Corinth before Timothy gets there. That's why he uses the future tense in, in chapter 16, when Timothy comes, see the epitome is among you. Right. Now, so we'd predict then that so the, most, the most obvious way to send a letter in those days from Ephesus to Corinth would be over the Aegean Sea, because they're essentially across the, the Aegean Sea from one another. Um, that would be the most obvious way to send a letter. And we'd infer then that Timothy must have taken the indirect overland route going up through Troas and Macedonia. That's how you would make sense of those very subtle and casual clues in 1 Corinthians. Now, when you turn over to Acts 19, in verse uh, 21 and 22, this is when they're in Ephesus, it says, After these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, that's where Corinth is, and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So he remains behind in Ephesus, and he sends Timothy and Erastus up through Macedonia, exactly as you would predict, given those clues in First Corinthians. But notice that Acts doesn't even mention Corinth as their destination. Um, it's, it's very, very casual and artless. Now, when you go to chapter 20, though, we read, um, after the uproar ceased, this is from verse 1, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, that's actually when he wrote Romans, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater to the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy. So Timothy, in fact, did mm. make it to Corinth, exactly as you would predict from those quizzes. But notice just how, just how indirect that connection is. Furthermore, it gets even better. Notice who Tim- Timothy's traveling companion is up through Macedonia. It's Erastus. Who's Erastus? Well, Romans 16 tells us, because Romans, we we can establish, was written during that three-month stint in Corinth, right? It says Erastus, the city treasurer, sends his his greetings. Also in 2 Timothy 4, Erastus remained at Corinth. And so it's quite fitting that, and we actually have an archaeological discovery, a pavement slab, discovered from the ancient ruins of Corinth, that says Erastus for the expense of this pavement. And so it's quite fitting then that Timothy should be traveling with Erastus, who happens to be from Corinth. It fits just in such an artless and casual, undesigned way with First Corinthians yeah. that it suggests that the author of Luke, whoever he was, was in the know about Paul's traveling right. activities. Um, <clears throat> and that, that's just one example um, of, uh, I mean, if you just give me Romans, First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, Galatians, the first four letters in the, in the New Testament that we have, I could already give you more than 40 examples of that sort okay. of thing. Um, would you... And, uh, would, would you, Dr. McClatchy, also use, well, you just used the the slab that was found with the inscription of Erastus's name, but would you also, so this is just a general question. Would you use these other archeological finds, you know, from the last hundred years as corroboration that undergird the historical reliability of the new Testament documents, which undergirds the, you know, the claims to the resurrection. So like the pilot inscription, the ossuary of James, 
or Caiaphas and so forth and so on? Yeah, I I would. Some of them are of more evidence. As indirect than evidence. Others, so I wouldn't. Yeah, so I, I wouldn't. I, I personally don't use like Pilate description, for example. Uh, the reason being that Pilate was a very, very well-known figure. So um, the, the things that I find to be more impressive are the hard things that the evangelists okay. get right. Uh, not like big picture things like who was the emperor at the time or who was the governor yeah. uh, at the time <clears throat> or what have you. So, so to, to give an example of that, so in Acts 27, Paul's, uh, sorry, Luke is talking about the shipwreck of St. Paul. And there's an excellent book on this topic, by the way, I recommend, which is by James Smith called The Voyage and Shipwreck of St. Paul. Uh, this is also covered by Colin Hemer in his book, The Acts, the Book of Acts and Sending Hellenistic History. Yeah, um, I was just about to mention basically, that. One. Um, yeah, uh, that's an excellent resource on extra biblical yeah. corroborations of Acts. Um, but uh, in terms of Paul's shipwreck in Acts 27, so of course, uh, they. Um, they're, they're, they're sailing from one end of the island, Crete, to the other, and um, they get this tempestuous wind called the Northeaster that strikes down on the land. Now, there is actually a well-confirmed wind that rides over Crete, and that happens to be strongest at this exact time around the time of Passover. So that's mm -hmm. interesting. And they get, they, the, the storm likely struck them in the, in the Bay of Massara, and the Isle of Cotta, where they end up getting blown to, is precisely the trajectory that Northeaster ought to have carried them. And that's not the sort of information that one could have reasonably inferred without having been blown there. It, and the ancients found it nearly impossible to physically locate the, where islands were, the, the, the location of islands that far out. Um, in fact, Ptolemy and, uh, the, uh, and the encyclopedist Pliny the Elder, uh, they had the estimates in Luke's day, and both contradict Luke's uh, uh, implied location of the Isle of Cotta. But Luke's account alone actually gets it correct. Um, and so Colin Hemer notes that it, it becomes increasingly difficult to think that Luke could have gotten this from some kind of contemporary reference work. Hmm. Um, so that's an example right. that suggests that Luke was indeed present with Paul during those travels. Another example would be um, in Acts 23, uh, we read uh, about Paul being apprehended and brought before the Jewish council. And Ananias, of course, presiding over the Jewish council. And those uh, and Ananias commands those to stand by to strike Paul in the mouth. And Paul says in, in response, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall, for in accordance with the law, you, ordered to, you, you presume to judge me, and yet contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck. And the people standing by say, you would revile God's high priest. And Paul says, oh, I did not know, brothers, that he was a high priest, for it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, this raises an interesting question. How come Paul doesn't know who the high priest is, right? That it's really could at least tell by his garb, if nothing else. Mm -hmm. uh, now, if you read Josephus, we learned that um, Ananias, of whom this was spoken, was in truth not the high priest, right? He'd been, he was sitting in judgment in that assuming capacity. He previously held the office. In AD 52, he got deposed. He was actually charged with sedition and sent bound to Rome to answer. And, and then he was later released, but not, it seems, reinstated to the office of priest. And there was another guy called Jonathan who succeeded him to that office. And Jonathan got assassinated. And so uh, between the death of Jonathan and the accession of Ishmael, son of Fabi, the next um, successor, there was no one occupying the office. And Paul's apprehension took place precisely in that interval. And so during that vacancy, it seems that Ananias uh, took upon himself the discharge of the office. And so then that illuminates uh, Paul's words. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize he was the high priest. <laughs> it's, a, it's a deliberate yeah. jab at, uh, at, at Ananias. Okay. Uh, and so when, when you can... When you consider all of those clues and evidences cumulatively, and there's you know there's scores and scores of those, it suggests that Luke was indeed a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. That being the case, then Luke was in fact present with Paul in Acts 21 when Luke meets with the Jerusalem elders. And um, according to Luke, uh, all the elders, uh, including James, who was the leader of the Jerusalem church, were present. And so Luke was personally in contact with the with those who were purportedly eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Of course, Luke was present with Paul for at least two years when Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea Maritima, um, following uh, that um, visit to Jerusalem. And Caesarea Maritima is fairly close to Jerusalem, so he would have had ample access during that time, presumably, to those witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. So Luke was in a position to know what the witnesses were claiming. We also have reason to think that Luke is incredibly scrupulous as an historian, right. and uh, and that he Absolutely. actually is trying to get things right. And so we have reason from that to think that Luke's 
representation of what the apostles believed concerning the resurrection is probably accurate. Um, and so then okay. that adds to our case that what we have in the Gospels and Acts actually reflects. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So beginning, uh, thank you. Very good. Again, joined by biology professor, Dr. Jonathan McClatchy. So what you have given us on the resurrection notion here is what you call, you prefer what you call, I think, the maximal data argument in contradistinction right. to the minimal facts argument. Is that right? <laughs> right, exactly. Okay. Um, and uh, you, you can, you know, share why you don't care for the minimal, minimal facts argument if you'd like to. I, I want to, um, sure. but I have, I have one more um, question to go back okay. to on science after you get done with that. I do want to say first, though, um, this was not by <clears throat> my design that you have actually, we ha on this episode on the Bible Professor podcast, you have actually covered uh, uh, scientific apologetics, philosophical apologetics, and now biblical apologetics. And that's pretty much the three circles, as I call them, for apologetics. So a, a full-orbed uh, Christian apologetics uh, sampler here today. And Dr. John <laughs> Jonathan McClatchy, uh, thank you. Uh, this has been uh, and hopefully will be a treat for many of our listeners. Uh, yeah. yeah, thanks. Um, so on the minimal facts argument, uh, <laughs> so this is, of course, championed by Gary Habermas and uh, also by Michael Lacona. Michael Lacona calls it the bedrock facts case. Um, but th there's a number of problems, I think. So basically, for those that aren't familiar, the minimal facts argument says that it basically tries to limit the data set that's used uh, in uh, making the case for the resurrection to those facts which are not only in Habermas's judgment well established, well supported um, evidentially, but also um, have persuaded more than ninety percent of contemporary scholars across the theological spectrum. And um, one problem that I have with the minimal facts approach is that uh, I think that many people overestimate just how much is granted by. Uh, contemporary New Testament scholarship. So, for example, when uh, someone like Habermas is pressed on the uh, uh, some alternative hypothesis to explain the appearances, such as uh, some sort of mass hallucinatory, exp hallucinatory experience or objective vision hypothesis or something, what minimal facts advocates will typically do is appeal to the implausibility of mass hallucinations or um, sh um, shared um, visions or something like that. Um, um, but that's no longer a minimal fact because the group appearances is not recognized by a, a consensus of scholars. And certainly the polymodal or multi-sensory nature of the resurrection encounters that we read of in the Gospels and Acts are not granted by the, the, the consensus of New Testament scholars. And so um, I, I think there's a little bit of a bait and switch going on there. Uh, and um, there, there's a there's what Lydia McGrew calls an epistemic bottleneck problem that it doesn't matter how much evidence you give for the quote appearances fact, uh, even granting that the appearances fact has a probability of one, you don't get any more probable than that. That's not sufficient to show that the apostles were rational in coming to believe that what best explains their experiences is that Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, in order to know that they were rational, we have to know something about what the experiences were like, uh, what was their nature. And if we can't say what they're like, then it becomes impossible to adjudicate whether they were reasonable in coming to that belief. And so I think that you have to make a robust case for the strong reliability of the Gospels and Acts. And I think that we shouldn't be burdened by that. I think it, we should consider it a privilege to be able to point people to the evidences that show that the Gospels and Acts are indeed composed by individuals who are well-informed close up to the facts and habitually scrupulous. Um, I, I'm also not convinced that, um, I, I'm certainly not convinced that one can rest the edifice, the, the entire edifice, the case for the resurrection of 1 Corinthians 15 and the Pauline corpus that people like Habermas and Michael Lacona tend to do. I, I, I do think that you have enough data in the Pauline corpus alone if you aren't granting the if you, if you aren't appealing to the Gospels and Acts. And I, I think yeah. Habermas also has a tendency to overplay how early you can date the creedal tradition in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7. Uh, I think that that's very plausibly pre-polling tradition, but I think that we any uh, any um, 
statements about how early that creed dates is simply intelligent conjecture. We really don't know. And so we ought to be careful not to overstate our case. Okay, interesting. Thank you. I want to switch gears, though, and go back to one science science question, scientific question, and then I'm going to ask you about your online ministries to, to, to close up. But uh, so um, back to faith and science, someone, uh, let's just suppose someone comes up to you, uh, you know, in an outdoor coffee shop in Boston, and you're having your afternoon tea or whatever, and they say, hey, uh, I heard you're a biology guy, but you're a Christian. Uh, don't you know that uh, apes and humans have common ancestry and therefore, you know, evolution is true? You know, how can you believe Christianity when we have this sort of thing? What would your answer be to that specific uh, notion, the, the common ancestry thing? So, uh, I mean, I, I think that the question of common descent is rather trivial. I mean, that okay. idea, of course, isn't something that was new with Darwin, uh, you can trace that back to the ancient Greeks. Uh, what was new with Darwin was the idea that natural selection and chance variation could explain the appearance of design without, of course, to an actual designer. Uh, I think that um, the more fundamental question is whether uh, there's evidence of teleology in life's origins uh, and development on Earth. Uh, I think that question uh, um, needs to be evaluated separately from the question of whether all organisms share ancestry. Because uh, it could be true that all organisms share a common ancestor, and yet we still require a teleological process uh, to explain the complexity and design of features of life. And I think that once you start to move away from Darwinian gradualism and embrace teleology instead, the boundary line between common descent and special creation starts to become rather less well-defined. For example, you could envision a scenario where God creates a new form of life using elements of the genome of a previous organism as a template for the synthesis of a new life form. Uh, and that would be consistent in some sense with common descent and consistent in some sense with special creation. Of course, not common descent in the sense that Darwinian biologists would, would mean. So I, I think that we have to be a little more nuanced and to draw this sharp dichotomy between special creation on one side and common descent on the, on the other. I, I do think that there is some evidence for common descent in some sense, but I think that, every, that I think that, um, whether or not common descent is true, I think that neo-Darwinian <clears throat> evolution, that is to say that all of the complexity of life and these A to B transitions that occur in the history of life can be explained by an unguided mindless process. I think that's demonstrably false. Okay. Very good. Thank you, Dr. McClatchy. I think your, um, your um, uh, thoughts here today are really going to encourage folks toward uh, uh, Christianity toward uh, rethinking maybe things they were taught in high school and or college at the university and maybe encourage other science professors or scientists out there to to uh, rethink things and think about, hey, there's another way to look at, you know, evidences or things going on in my field of study or my field of science that maybe do uh, point to toward God, you know, maybe there's not I don't need to have this bifurcation in my mind of, well, science is over here and the Bible and God are over here sort of thing. Um, so let me ask you, uh, as we begin to uh, land the plane, you have quite a um, online ministry. You, you've debated scholars of every stripe all over the world on YouTube and live events. And I've I've watched some of your YouTube uh, videos. Uh, you have a ministry called uh, Talk About Doubts. You have a website, jonathanmcclatchy.com. Uh, so share a little bit about that. But I also want you to answer this question. What of your debates, what was your most harrowing, challenging debate uh, out there? And maybe what was your most uh, fun one that you feel like you really got through to people and, and so forth? Yeah, so um, my website, as you mentioned, jonathanmcclatchy.com, has a lot of my essays, and I, I link to my videos there as well. So um, check that out if you would like to read some of my essays on various theological, scientific, and apologetics-related topics. Um, I also, as you mentioned, have a ministry called talkaboutdoubts.com, where basically we um, are a team of more than 60 scholars in different subjects who are 
willing to do private uh, Zoom calls with Christians that are struggling with doubts in relation to their faith. So we have philosophers, we have New Testament scholars, Old Testament scholars, specialists in biblical Hebrew, um, Syro-Palestinian archaeologists. We have uh, uh, psychologists, um, physicists, biologists, uh, uh, even pastors on our team. And yeah, we basically the way it works is someone comes to the website, talkaboutdoubts.com, and um, fills out a form. And then we distribute that to the most relevant scholar on our team. And then that <clears throat> scholar will get in touch with that individual and set up a private call. We also have a Discord community for past inquirers of our team, which has grown to over 100 people. Um, since we launched in December, we've had uh, well over 270 inquiries at Talk About Doubts. So we've had um, a little over two a day on average. Uh, and um, we also have weekly Zoom hangouts for past inquirers, uh, which alternates between an emotional support group and an online course that we teach on the evidences for Christianity. So yeah, if, you, if you're struggling with doubts about your faith, or indeed, if you're an ex-Christian who wants to explore whether there's a rational way back to faith, then please uh, reach out at talkaboutdoubts.com. Okay, yeah, I know that's a a, 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 ba a passion and burden of yours to reach those who are thinking about deconverting, uh, trying to get to them at that point. So talkaboutdoubts.com, and these uh, ministry websites will be in the description below. Uh, Dr. McClatchy, uh, please, if you would, um, share about your debating and your thoughts on debate. What's What was your most harrowing debate? What is your most often uh, topic? I know you debate Muslims, you debate on science, you debate on the resurrection, you debate on uh, the messianic nature of Jesus. What do you debate on the most and what is your favorite topic? Yeah, so I, I actually, to be honest, I don't consider debates to be particularly useful because and for, there's a number okay. of reasons for that. Um, so, for example, um, I, I've done debates before on the resurrection of Jesus and then turns out that my opponent doesn't even think a robust case can be made for the historicity of Jesus in the first place. And so you have to spend a lot of time just bringing them up to speed and educating them about the evidence for, for Jesus. And you don't really get to touch the topic. And so um, the audience perceives that as a loss because you just haven't gotten to the topic because you have to go so far back to bring your opponent up to speed. So that's a frustration. Um, debates also I see as a means to an end rather than end of themselves. They are supposed to be like a um, starting point for further mm -hmm. self-study is only right. an introduction to the topic where you see like a very uh, introductory argument both for and against whereas i find a lot of people try to educate themselves on a topic just by watching debates which is just not a good way to to do this um, and they consider uh, a lot of people consider debates to be an end in themselves rather than the beginning of one's uh work it's meant to be a study tool um so yeah, and also I find that with debates, rhetoric often comes to be is is often more important than actual argumentative substance. So mm -hmm. in, yeah. in view of those and other other concerns, I, I'm less interested in doing debates at this point. So I, I uh, my focus at the moment has shifted to we talk about doubts work. But to answer okay. your question about uh, what I thought was the most challenging debate and maybe the most fun one, um, uh. I think probably the one where my opponent put out the big, the best uh, uh, resistance was the uh, debate that I and Max Baker Heitch uh, from um, from Oxford did with uh, Apologia YouTuber and Harry Amos uh, on the resurrection of Jesus. Really enjoyed that debate. I thought that. Um, that the audience got to see kind of a good introduction to the best that both sides of that argument has to say. Uh, so I, I really appreciated that debate. Um, okay. I've also done debates where my opponent was completely woefully unprepared. Uh, my debate with Peter Atkins, for example, a physical chemist at Oxford University, never tired, but uh, that was a debate which was not, it, it was very, very one-sided. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah. You just never know what you're going to run into, right, uh, with your opponent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Dr. McClatchy, one final question. Um, what do you see as the biggest moral category or just problem problem area for the church today? 
Um, I think anti-intellectualism in the church and uh, anti-intellectualism. Uh, okay. And anti-intellectualism. Yeah, I, I think there there shouldn't be a need for talk about doubts. This should be a pastor's role. But unfortunately, <laughs> pastors aren't doing jobs in this regard. I agree. I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, and, and maybe that's a topic we can hit uh, on another episode if if uh, if I can get more of your time one day. But uh, mm -hmm. okay, well, so we've been joined today by biology professor Dr. Jonathan McClatchy and his uh, ministry talkaboutdoubts.com, jonathanmcclatchy.com. These will be in the links below. Thank you, Dr. McClatchy, for joining us today on The Bible Professor. Thank you so much. Okay, you've been listening to The Bible Professor. Thank you. Be blessed.